Hey everyone, Alicia here. I wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to Custom Equine Nutrition. Based out of Vermont, Custom Equine makes a variety of supplements specifically focused on targeting deficiencies in horses' hay and forage. Time and again, I am impressed with the positive changes in the hooves I see on their Vermont blend or their copper and zinc blend, as well as their options for vitamin E and omegas. Check them out at customequinenutrition.com. Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. A few weeks ago, I chatted with three qualified farriers in the UK, Matthew Jackson, Mark Johnson, and Robbie Richardson, who shifted their business to barefoot and composites during their career. Thank you all for making their episode one of the most popular yet. They got some amazing feedback about that conversation. If you missed it, you can scroll back three episodes to the UK Farriers Gone Alternative one. Because their conversation was so interesting, I asked them to hop on another call with the focus on how horses compensate for less than ideal movement, environments, diet, confirmation, and even hoof care. The conversation is not our standard question and answer format, but I hope you can follow along and enjoy it. Well, I think originally you had mentioned doing an episode on how horses compensate. And I think that obviously yeah. can can dive into a bunch of different sidetracks. You know, there's a lot of different rabbit holes. Yeah, I feel yeah. like you can go in that direction. Um, yeah. Yep. And I even have, like, I just have, I would love to hear what you say in that topic because I want to, you know, make sure that I'm doing the right thing and seeing the right thing all the time too. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, if you if you manage to get there with that, Alicia, could you please let me know if nobody yeah. else? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm standing right behind you on that. <laughs> and I know that you've all seen it, but I've had so many people reach out to me about this episode. I've had, you know, countless comments, messages of people saying this was the last one that you did was their favorite episode, that you all are really wise and that you gave a lot of really good food for thought. So thank you for <laughs> sharing all your experience. It's just very, very nice of you to invite us back into humble hoofland. <laughs> of course. I mean, I love talking to you all, and it's really great because I get to learn from you too. So I appreciate it. It's a little bit selfish <laughs> on my part. All right. So yeah, we'll I'm not even sure how to necessarily start this conversation about, you know, compensation, but. Well, I do have some ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Predominantly, what you have is, you know, horse goes lame. It's nearly always a compensatory lameness that starts to form unless it's like a major trauma and everybody obsesses around it. And sometimes what's happening is, is they're missing the point of why it's compensating. So I think birth to adulthood and then after adulthood, what starts to happen, I think's kind of like the key part to it, you know? So it's like the importance of young horses moving, what's expected to happen in their feet before they hit adult weight. And then what happens after that, because that's the point in which people start noticing and looking at feet when they want to do stuff with them. So, like, so certainly for me, when I was, I suppose, at the height of my career, it was very much so about holding off shoes or whatever else, Uh, certainly long distance riders, different things like that, to develop as much of these feet as possible. Yeah, I mean, I come from, when you you said the word compensation, I mean, flipping heck, my, my mind just span, because 
I, I don't know about anybody else in this chat, but certainly the very first time and also continuously, when I go to meet a horse for the first time or, or whatever, engage with it, almost the last thing I'm looking at is its feet. And it's mm. quite surreal for an owner when you sort of arrive there because obviously everything's been built up to this guy coming in to deal with feet. And, and it's like, well, hang on a minute, because we can't begin to get hold of the feet if we've got other major issues going on. And there mm-hmm. are some there's some real commonalities in this. So I guess that's that feels like it's a natural go-to for me around the topic of compensation. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. right. I think as well, I mean, it starts sort of, getting into the realms of being able to kind of read feet, but also observing when the foot then start to fail and becoming a victim of what's happening further up. Um, Absolutely. Now, I was going to say there's also the topic of kind of low-grade laminitis and how people look at that, you know. My kind of thoughts of it was always that horses, being a flight animal, being a herd animal, the you know, within these kind of scenarios, you know, we've got to think about you know, going back to nature as well, you know, and and more importantly, if something's wrong with that horse and it's disease driven or something or whatever it is, it will be eliminated or will it, be, it will be expelled from the herd. Now, what's interesting in my observations over time is that predominantly what starts happening is, is you start getting sore feet. So if you think of it from an, a natural point of view, if that animal can't run away, from anything stalking it or wanting to eat it it's a very natural way of keeping disease out of a herd um but then of course we we are constantly viewing it from a kind of domestication point of view where that kind of those those kind of dangers don't exist so sort of like for me anything a horse gets a kick in the field it'll get low grade laminitis ulcerations low grade laminitis so you you start forming development this kind of onion effect where you've got layers and layers and layers of challenges forming but predominantly it's all been driven by the fact that that horse has to try and maintain a kind of levelness so it's not eliminated from the herd so it's not highlighted within that kind of group of being easy food you know and then there's what we do is that interpretation within the domestic scenario and also how we start addressing and start looking at what the primary cause is and then working back the way. I was just going to going to sort of jump in there and, and say, well, in conjunction with Matt, what Matthew's just said, how often are we presented with this horse that's gone high in the heels? And mm. somebody is screaming at us to say, you've got to get those heels down as a result of it going sore, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, what the horse's body has done, it's become very, very compressed in its trapezius. So in other words, its, whole, its shoulders are hunched because it's, it's, it's had to adapt its stride. It can't give you that full stride. So do we then come in and try and readapt that foot to what we perceive to be a norm? Or do we actually stand back and say, just a minute, pal, you're really comfy as you are. And I think that's you know, on the back of it, when we get directly involved with hoof care, I think that's that's a real real biggie in terms of the, yeah. you know, the, the morphology of feet. Yeah, yeah. yeah so kind of, yes, sorry, Lisa, go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I started hoof care with this question that I feel like over the last few years still hasn't necessarily been answered. But, you know, how many times when I go to a horse, um, am I just trying to keep what 
they have going on because that's what's working for them and how many times, because you know, due to compensation or due to whatever else they have going on in their environment or somewhere else in their body, or how many times should I be going to them and looking to change that and adjust it and make it better? And my, you know, constant question that I'm asking myself is, am I making this case better or am I actually taking away their compensation that they need? Um, and I don't know if if maybe some of you can highlight some ways that you've sort of addressed whether you're going to try to change something or keep it as it is because that's what the horse needs to handle well, whatever for, situation. For me, it's for me, it's always coming back to what's the horse t- telling me after what I've done. Yes. Um, always again, close close observation of how the horse is using itself in that moment, and. You know, then we can get into we can get into the literal things, even like gently using hoof testers to determine um, whether we've got a reactive hoof or not. Because if we if we boldly go in and destabilise a reactive hoof, so in other words, you're only simulating what it's going to be like potentially if it steps on a stone or that that kind of thing. But do you see what I mean? If we suddenly suddenly throw that foot into a profile where it's got to completely engage when it's not ready we should i I think anyway we should be concentrating far more on getting that horse into a healthy place first mitigating any any overt problems with it we might have a horse that's landing very very heavily heel first well in that case the horse is probably saying to us hang on my heels are too high but i'm not fit enough to actually move enough to make that change so then we you know Potentially, we can come in and do something then. But um, so I think that's that's kind of the way that I always come at this. Is Robbie still here, or is he gone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm learning a lot. Um, um, I will come in on a couple of points for me. One is the testers. Um, I keep saying this over and over and over again, especially to vets. Please, please, when you you are using hoof testers, remember you are testing two sides of the foot. Uh, you get carried away by the pressure that you're putting on the sole, but the other end of your testers, nine times out of ten, is in line with the terminal lamina. Yeah. And it is just as likely that you're uh, getting a reaction from the terminal lamina um, as you are from the actual sole. And, 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 you know, anybody can make any horse, I think, lame if you squeeze hard enough. But um, anyway, that, that's mainly when I have the best. Um, what I, after we had our last chat and, and Alicia talking about compensating. I, I, I came up with this this sort of query um, because we had this sort of impartial conversation the other day and, and realised that we all went away and thought about maybe what we were going to be saying today. Um, I'd like to give you the scenario that we have t- two horses in front of us and they have a choice and we're assuming um, you know that they can make that choice. And I believe that um, if the shod horse is standing in front of us and you, and you have they have the choice of having a good farrier or a good owner. They can't necessarily have both. And I think um, what we're talking about in compensation is that the, the horse that is shod will choose the good farrier and the barefoot horse will choose the good owner. And I say that because if you think about it, the compensation that the horse is having to make is going to be, if it's going to have to be shod, then you hope that it's got a good farrier first because it doesn't seem to have much choice because it's going to be shod. The barefoot, if it has a good owner, um, everything starts from there. I think we sort of ended the thing last time on this, but and, and get the owner being able to support everything that we want to do and everything we're talking about 
will not work unless we have good owners. You can give me as many you know good horses as you like, but all I want is a good owner. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I think when we talked about talking about compensation and different things like that, my absolute foundation of any, any horse is what happens from birth to adult weight. You know, this is your key time that structure has to develop, you know. So we look at where we're referencing to our Mustangs, to how many lamini they have compared to domestic horses, lateral cartilage development, digital cushion development, all that kind of thing. And we see a feeling within our domestic horses that isn't just a kind of slight, they're miles away from fully formed developed feet. And then the challenge that you have then is at whatever point you get to start working on that animal. Again, we talked about this the last time and Robbie's highlighted this. What can the horse owner do? What can they do to improve that animal? So we've got well, multiple disciplines. We've got the environment that it's living in, stress levels, grazing issues, weather challenges. Does it even like the horse in its field that, that it's its mate? And then you're sort of looking at eliminating as much as that levels of stress as possible and this i think is very very key because again getting back to this low grade laminitis if this horse is not happy and if he's upset he will be sick you know and if you've got a very very well developed foot those impacts are minimal if you have a very underdeveloped foot and you've got an adult horse moving over the top of that the feel that hoof capsule pretty catastrophic um and then after that, it's like when they start becoming adult horses. My experience as well is it's high levels of development will happen to adult weight. After that, you get compensation happening. So your compensations, things like the side bone, it's specifically an in of certain areas of soul. The soul, people overlook the soul so much, whereby the first thing they do is rip a shoe off or whatever and then start carving it out with a knife. And they've just not observed what that animal's just laid in there for its comfort. And when you start to understand that and learn that, it gives you a window into the internals of what that foot's needing and what's happening with it. Yeah. Sorry, I was just letting somebody else kind of come in. Because I can just oh, talk yeah. all night. Like <laughs> you, were doing, you were doing so well, Matthew. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Yeah. No, no, I agree. And and if you listen to certainly to Matthew and Mark, who because I'm doing less out in the field now, um, but certainly the work that I've done and the, and the work that I did in the hospital, we, we um, realised that everything we did, no matter how professional we were, because bearing in mind, I keep repeating, we're working in this area which the feral horse doesn't have, and that is of of man's intervention. So the self-healing mechanism that the feral horse has is a far larger area in the wild because it has a good owner and the owner is the rest of the herd. So they they are out in the right conditions, they are eating the right diet and they're moving the right amount um, and they're lactating, gestating, they're fighting other horses, whatever it is, they're, they're keeping fit and they're fit for purpose. When we take them and we create this area where all their compensation is going to be taken care of by our intervention, by, by whether it's shoes, whether it's uh, chemicals, whatever we choose to do from worming 
to shoeing, to clipping, to rugging up. It, it is our choice to intervene. So the horse doesn't have that choice. We're, we're, we're intervening on that. And when you, you talk about a, uh, a young horse before it's shod, it, it is always given, if it, if it was a bright thing, they, at, the end, at the end of the day, <laughs> they would always choose the best owner because they're going to be given the best conditions, the best diet, and hopefully the best uh, um, you know, start in life as a foal I mean, I see uh, racehorses being born or, or, or venters or top-grade horses that have been bred because of the parentage of, of, of the foal, and it is wrapped in cotton wool, it's put on a level paddock, it's put in straw up to its hocks, whatever. And I just want to scream at them, you know, when's this thing going to go out? And when you look at the feral foal and how far it goes in its, its first yeah. day and how much it gets used to articulating its uh, its joints and how much the ligaments, the tendons, the muscle tissue, the memory, it, it, it by the end of the first week, it is experienced far more in its whole skeletal system than a, a top-grade racehorse will in, until it's uh, probably 18 months old. And then when it breaks down or it doesn't stride up a, a far enough for, for the owner or trainer to say it's going to go anywhere, it's, um, it, you know, it's ignored on its biomechanics, which it wasn't allowed to express as an early foal. Yeah. I see that a lot. Dr. Uh, Dear Dr. Yeah. Bowker and his neurosensitivity. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I had experience um, for a period of time working at a stud over in Aberdeenshire. It was absolutely fantastic because these guys, with my recommendations, really radically changed an awful lot of husbandry and what they were doing. They were very traditional how they did it, looked after the horses very, very well. But predominantly, these animals were relatively static. And of course, they were flat races. So some of them were sort of in training at two-year-olds. So, so you had this fantastic opportunity within a very short period of time to see what you could do with development and different things like that. And the farmer had, uh, the, the guy the guy that had it, he had farms and things. And he had this area that was quite rugged and rocky and hilly and things like that that he didn't really use because he couldn't because he couldn't really plough it and different things like that. So he started putting these young horses out on that. And the plane these animals did was fantastic. But what was very interesting with it was they started developing digital cushions very, very quickly. The structure started to form very, very quickly. As soon as they got out, as soon as they were playing, as soon as they were running around. And I'm not talking about sort of like 10,000 pound horses here. I'm talking 100,000 pound animals here. You know, so the bravery to let that investment out and basically get into trouble was a huge leap of faith for these people. But what was interesting was within the third and fourth year, they were getting more winners, mm. you know. And the and predominantly the reason was, and they had this fantastic guy that I'd known from when I was an apprentice who was an encyclopedia on the breeding of every resource known to man. And what was interesting, my first few weeks being there and different things like that, picking my brain and stuff like that, basically I could tell them how well the horse was going to do, but more importantly, how its, how its lineage did on the racetrack based on how well developed these digital cushions were. So very, very poor digital cushions. Basically, they loved the soft ground. Well, they loved the soft ground because they didn't have any shock absorbent system there. So the ones that had half-decent structure at the back of it really enjoyed the hard ground. And very, very quickly, the groom was able to say, well, actually, its mum was like that. Oh and, oh, and its offspring have done that and different things like that. So straight away, you got them caught and hooked on this. 
because there was a performance element that they could extract out of these animals. And the irony was it wasn't keeping them in a stable and basically not allowing that development. It was actually letting them out and allowing them to run up and down hills. Can I just can I just yeah. uh, to, to back that up? What we're talking about here is facilitating self healing, and and uh, I, I I sort of put growth in with healing here. So so we're talking about horse growing and and healing, um, you know, because it is good for it. Now this you know what you've just said. Of course, everybody should be doing, but um, I'm I'm going to be sort of quite callous and cruel here, but. Um, the vet said to me once, um, it's all very well, this barefoot, Robbie, but what's in it for us? And and this is the crux of it. At the moment, the, the equine industry is massive. And when you look at the nutrition and certainly the, uh, the human input to this red area, this area that we've created of intervention, where we don't create self-healing, we actually say, no, here are the painkillers, here are the anti-inflammatories, here are the, the steroids, here, here's your wormers, all, all the things that aren't really healing, they're, they're, they're putting on a sticking plaster. Um, Absolutely. There are just so many classic examples to this. Yeah. The hind feet, for example, and hind feet are so often missed, aren't they? You know, we've got the, not the classic NPA, the toe shooting forward, the weak internal structure. Yeah. And that, that posture much of it is being driven by ulcers or can mm-hmm. be being driven by ulcers. The horse is cramped in its pelvis and tucking its pelvis subtly forward continuously. And you can start to see the cecum being um, enlarged as well. And you can see the large intestine, all the, the tension around that. Well, if you're trying to get those hind feet out of that stuck spot, you've almost got no chance at all until you fix that which the horse is compensating for. Mm-hmm. So uh, all, all this, all these chain reactions that go on through the horse's body tend to be a minefield but you can start to pick the bones out of it yeah sorry go on yeah it's funny you should say that my go-to with every new client and clients that i had was pre and probiotics get protection in your animal give it liver support on a very very regular basis and that will minimize the impact of our uk environment if that's all you can pay if that's all you can put into those animals, please just do that. That's your base supplement for to put it in. And everything was based around the health of the gut. Because if you haven't got that, exactly what Mark's saying, the yeah. adaption and the and, and and the positions these animals put themselves into because they are in pain, but they are still willing to be under saddle. They're still willing in this de- desire and need to be as level as possible until that point in which it completely fails. And then everybody comes in, wonders what's wrong with it, you know? And again, we've got to get back to understanding what the horse is trying to tell what, because it's taken six weeks to eight weeks to get itself potentially in a position where it is comfortable. And we've just reversed that. Do you know what I mean? Without questioning where that horse is at a point in time. And what's very important is the point at time. Because our UK weather and different things, because our climate changes constantly, these animals are adapting constantly. So you could shoot it one week, one way, and that horse is in trouble next week because we've had high levels of rainfall. You know what I mean? So it's so it's absolute key that we can supplement to minimise that level of environmental effect. You know, is, and then is, is there a point though, Matt? Sorry, Mark, I'm butting no, in. 
I'm, I'm just wondering whether, you know, we're talking about shoeing, but the three of us aren't talking about shoeing. And I think at some point we must turn the conversation around to the fact that we, we, we mustn't stand alone as we're not standing alone, but it, how, how to actually facilitate uh, that, that self-healing so that they have um, healthy gut, healthy biomechanics, healthy feet. I'm happy to, you know, wait to ask this question later on. But, um, you know, I've spent some time talking to Mark. Well, obviously, we we had that phone call the other night, which I think was amazing. And I know that we can't completely replicate it. But even since then, I've been asking Mark some questions. Because obviously, we come to horses that are compensating or horses that have dealt with issues from, you know, either their management or, you know, previous hoof care work that maybe had, you know, was lacking in some way or another. Um, and, I want to make sure that, you know, based on their biomechanics and their movement, that we're able to look at the foot and see ways it is compensating or ways that it's moving and affecting how the foot is growing or how the health of the foot is, you know, when we come to it. Um, And I was wondering if you all could maybe chat a little bit about uh, ways, you know, I know Mark earlier mentioned gut health and how they that can affect posture. But ways um, issues in the body can affect their feet and also maybe even ways their movement can be affected due to other issues higher up and how we can deal with that in a, a better way than maybe the common knowledge that's out there. If that can question makes you, sense. <laughs> can I ask you a question, Leisha? Yeah. When, when you turn up at an owner and you see a problem, and you think it might be owner-driven, how do you go about solving it? So typically when I come to a horse, I'll talk to the owner about, you know, diet, environment, movement, um, and what I see in the foot in terms of, you know, if there's thrush, if there's white line issues, if there's thin soles, if there's anything that I see in the hoof capsule that I feel is coming from something outward that the owner could change. Um, I have had some owners part ways with me because they felt like my job was just to show up and trim a foot. And I tend to dig in a little deeper and talk to them about what they can adjust. Um, But I feel like I'm still learning that, you know, I'm still learning all the way, all the things I can look for and all the things I can talk to owners about. um, Because I feel what I'm realizing is that that to me is probably the most important partner. And, 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 And no matter what knowledge Mark, Matthew and I and you have, um, if it's not going to be carried out when we're not there, then we've done, we've not done our job as well. So so I I now worry more about what the uh, what my abilities are to be able to get what I need done by the owner um, through to them rather than what I'm going to perform on the horse because if 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 daily it's not being um backed up by by what we need doing a we'll we won't succeed and and you won't get a name for being successful but also but i mean if we break it all down as well we've got to understand young horses feet has to develop then you have disease issues disease issues you have trauma issues you have stress issues you've got all these other things going on so when you turn up on that animal you're very quickly as you drive onto a yard you're looking to see what the fields look like you all that kind of stuff. But but more importantly, everywhere around the world very different with the environment that the animal predominantly works in. Now, a foot is no different to a muscle or anything like that. If it's worked consistently on a certain environment, it will adapt to that environment and it'll be the best foot possible on that environment. I was very, very lucky where I was. It was predominantly roadwork. 
So my biomechanical balancing was all based around horses that were doing very well, doing road work. And I'm not talking a couple of miles a day. You know, most of them were 10 to 15 miles per day was what they were doing with horses. And these were the guys that were then the breakover with all these horses were absolutely consistent, regardless of what the breed was. The heel alignment was absolutely consistent, regardless of what the breed was like. Do you know what I mean? How much foot material they were putting out, the patterns on the soles, how much how much callus was being laid in was very, very consistent based on, let's say, for example, the mechanical development of that foot and where that foot was at. Do you know what I mean? So very early on, I was at a huge advantage because I was learning from these feet. Then I was replicating that to horses that was coming into my practice that you were you were kind of looking for help. So that's a huge advantage. But like if you go to the States and you've just got desert, all your horses are going to have a certain specific foot based on the needs of that desert. So again, this is, you know, we can talk about this, but what we're talking about is not something, let's say, you know, how many, how many different trims are there? How many different styles of trimming around the world is that on this guy says that, or this lady says that, or this farrier says that, you know, what does the horse want? What does the horse want within its environment? And it's this ability to absorb the needs, the mechanical needs of that animal, because the animal will be compensating to deal with biomechanical needs of that of itself. And and this is what Mark was saying earlier on. We've got to step back sometimes and just say, right, feel the digital cushion, have a palpation of of let's say the lateral cartilages, that kind of stuff. Have a look at the collateral groove. How 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 much depth have I got there? How much sole have I got there? Have I got excessive callus? Excessive callus sometimes is an indication that actually you've got no concavity there. Do you know what I mean? What's my hoof angle? And when you can understand that and you can read that, this is the point in time in which I'm seeing this horse. Then you speak to the owner. Okay, what challenges do you have? And then you start with a program of, well, I think you need a physio. I think you, I think you need this person or that person. You need to change the diet, that kind of thing. That's that. And again, is what Robbie's saying. That is the strength and the power that you have to empower the horse owner to make that animal better. Because predominantly you're there because it's got a problem. That was predominantly why I was being asked to have a look at this and have a look at that. Because your reputation was driving that you could fix them. And, you know, very, very nice. But how much responsibility was being placed on you? Because what you were then having to do was educate the horse owner to try and get that animal right. Well, I don't know anything. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't know everything. I just know what I've learned. So the strength in trimmers or farriers uh, and their skills is the ability to bring other professionals on board and create a team around that horse if the owner is proactive and wanting to do that. Soapbox, I'm finished. Mark, do you have, I know that um, Mark, you had some really good thoughts the other day about, I mean, I was asking specifically the other day about medial lateral balance because, you know, that's something where I'm always questioning, am I doing the right thing for the horse's movement or for the horse's confirmation or for the horse's comfort or for whatever else is going on in that limb that might yeah. cause them to lean one way or, you know, crush one heel or flare one side. Uh um Oh yeah, I know. And you and you were so kind to to send me through the imagery of that, and uh, I really feel for you with that one because 
it's one of these scenarios where you're actually fighting that horse's skeleton. You know, the horse's skeleton is, is kind of fixed. And the, the profile that you've got, the, or the situation you've got, basically, is your, your grey horse there is landing heavily on the outside and then coming to the inside and, and landing. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. So you've got that sort of leverage effect going on there. Well, if we come back up the leg to where the knee joint is, the carpus, there's, there's every probability that that horse's carpus is offset to the outside. Okay, and that's, that's quite a commonality, obviously, with, with all horses that we deal with. But for some of them, it becomes more intense. And we, it's, it's very easy to forget, to forget when we talk about the extensor tendons, for example. In a live horse, they're very much situated laterally to the outside on the limb. And, and I think there's, that promotes really quite a, quite a tension coming down the outside. So if that horse isn't in its young, formative years, if you like, if it's not doing enough movement, there's, there's a possible static, steady pull to the outside, which I, I think probably encourages that carpus to rotate more as that joint's forming towards the outside. So basically, your horse is now breaking over well and truly towards the outside toe. And what that's doing is it's wearing away the outside toe, but then you're left with this almost medial flare, which makes it look like it's going pigeon-toed. With that, am I, am I on the right sort of track with this? Yeah, definitely, yes. Yeah, okay. Well, then when you lift that limb up and you bring the foot up towards you, there's this huge discrepancy from the fetlock joint and the cannon bone. The cannon bone's coming down in one direction. The fetlock joint's going off in another direction. But when you really look at it, what it's doing is it's presenting the outside of that pedal bone to the floor first. So the horse almost can't help uh, but land on the outside. You know, and we're battling away as hoof care providers, trying to, trying to ease this, trying to sort that out. And we're just fighting the skeleton the skeletal stack but for me personally where it comes in obviously we've got the horse's comfort which is one element of it an important element element of it but i hate to see leverage running through the fetlock joints so as the horse lands on the outside putting that force that final settling force through the fetlock joint if that's causing a twist there then we, I think we've got a we've got a problem because tendons are extremely strong in a straight line pull. But when you start to put a regular twist on those tendons, that's when they begin to break down, and that's that's where it starts to worry me. So what are we going to do about it? Well, I'm really really feedback orientated, and and I guess that really feel, um, sort of feeds in very well when we're talking generally speaking about medial lateral balance and heel height and breakover and all of those good things. I mean. There's a, there's a big leaning towards both, uh, the, well, it seems to be in both camps. Some people probably use both. I don't know. We've got the T-square and we've got live soul. So which one do you go with? Well, I've, I've kind, of, kind of done both through, through the stuff that I do. But now I'm, I'm just so very focused on, I love my slow motion photography. If I've got a, a, a horse which I'm not sure about, I love watching it in slow motion. I love seeing that footfall in slow motion. And I love tweaking things according to that because I think it's very, very easy. When we have our coping strategies like the T-square or lifestyle or whatever, it's very easy just to get stuck in 
and create a hoof around that. But we haven't actually stepped back and taken the horse's opinion into that. So a typical example would be whereby we might look at this foot and we'll come back to the high outside again. So we'll look at that foot, see it's very high on the outside and think, oh, goodness, you know, that's got to come down, et cetera, et cetera. But then you walk the horse up and down and all of a sudden you find, hang on a minute, that's not interfering with that horse. It's landing actually quite comfortably. So I'm always looking for fluidity through the joints. I want everything to move as fluently and as, as easily as possible. I don't want the cranking. I don't want the resistance there. And I'm, I'm very, very happy to take the horse's opinion on the, on the medial. In fact, if I've ever got that sort of a query, I'll always see the horse move for sure just to check out how it's landing. And nine times out of ten, that horse is putting itself there for a reason. You know, it's got an upper body condition, which is going to, if you take it away, it's going to return it by the time you see it again. Yeah. And unless you can unpick that, or you, you know, or you can deal with that, then that is going to be the driving force for what's happening to that foot. And just to try and come in and say, well, hang on a minute, you know, that that's got to change with the foot. You've got to you've got to bring the body into alignment. You've got to get the body to agree to that before we're going to see any progress. Again, I'm I'm really really focused on what's the horse telling me, and I'm very happy to go with that. And then we, we've talked about breakover before as well, and we might we we've always got to come back to clinical positioning. We've got to know where that pedal bone is inside the hoof. We've got to know how that hoof is expected to function around it. But we have to be sympathetic to the horse's moment in time. So we might look at this horse and say, hang on a minute, you've got a really long toe, mate. We've got to bring that toe back. But if the horse is so compromised that it's not going to engage the back of its foot at all and we start hauling that toe back, we've got to remember that the horse basically is only engaging with the front half of its foot. It's not engaging with the back half. So so actually, yes, you've got static leverage there, but in, in dynamic movement, you've not got anything like as much. If you can bring the toe back, brilliant. But if you can't and the horse says, I can't cope with this, then that's for another day. You know, so I'm always trying to, to get the snatch out of breakover but I've always got to be sympathetic and aware of where's that horse in that moment when we're do, trying to do what we do. So that's, I, I think that's kind of kind of where I'm coming from on, on that. Yeah, and I think, you know, the current drive for, well, I don't know if you've seen this, but I definitely have seen it where I am, the current drive for, you know, constantly bringing the toe back. I know that there are some horses I can't do that on without them Yes, that's, that's really what exactly sore. what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I have something I want to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, stop it, guys. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting breakover as well, you know, in getting back to how people are taught. We're taught, we're taught symmetry and feet around the frog. And this is what we're saying about compensation. The foot itself has to be, if you think of gravity, because nobody thinks of gravity, if you think of gravity and what that limb has to do, it has to hold up the rest of the mass of the animal. So the foot has to sit within the centre line of the main bulk of weight in which it's having to hold up. So what's interesting, when young horses are born, they're kind of on triangles and their legs are sticking out all over the place. As they grow and as they develop, that shoulder has to develop. They have to form up. 
So what it's trying to do, what the shoulder is trying to do, it's trying to move out over the top of that limb. At a point for that animal to move correctly and to move balanced, balance, the foot has to line within the centre of mass. So when you start getting these in adult horses where you've got these little bendy legs and different things like that, that's formed from birth to adult weight. And what that foot then does through through remodeling, it will then start developing itself internally to function based on where it's been left at. So yeah, growth plates are fused, all that kind of stuff. Now, how many horses have you ever seen? And I bet I can probably I've only ever seen one where the breakover was pretty much at the tip of the frog. Then <laughs> always off to the outside. Always off to the outside. Now, if you take a line over that breakover and you start running that back, what you'll find is the heels themselves. Let's say if it's an outsider inside, if you have a taller heel, it's going to move forward. If you have a lower heel, it's going to move back. But always with my horses working on roads and different things like that, they'd always have one heel slightly taller than the other. But you could literally draw a perfect square if you line these guys up. So what you've got, you've got break over the first action, very specific to the knee and the hock joint, very much so on those planes. And the landing was always heel first or the back two thirds of the foot engaging. But these heels were not in alignment with the bulbs of these frogs. One heel was always slightly taller than the other. And it's slightly taller to match with the breakover angle in which that limb is moving. So the foot will compensate and remodel based on the adultness of that horse and what its limbs need to do once your growth plates are fused. That, now, I, I, I get that. And, and what I think I, I, I'm concerned about, and um, going back to the shoeing side, is that when you consistently get that, and, and we all find it in a horse, barefoot or short, but mm-hmm. nobody... Um, I mean, I certainly did teach all my students that you put that break when when we were shooting. You put that break over in uh, from the moment you shoot the horse. You 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 must be shooting sympathetic to the movement of that horse if you believe that's as, as best as you can get. And at no point, at no point, is either a shoe manufacturer they'll quite happily make a hind that's flared on the outside or they're used to. I know they don't now, but nobody is talking about putting in. No. The breakup that horse needs from the start. Yeah. So for the first two or three weeks of any set of shoes, the the uh, horse is having to, to try and put that breakover in itself. And uh, the owner is saying, oh, well, he's stumbling a bit after he was shot, but he's all right now. You know, we get back to what Alicia was saying about compensation. You know, it, it, to me, it is malpractice. To me, it is it is uh, certainly unprofessional not to take these considerations into your professionalism of when you're going to shoot that horse, and so that the horse shouldn't be compromising. If if there is a possibility of it not compromising, then it shouldn't have to. And how um, and how easy is it to use a grinder on a hoof boot or a composite shoe to achieve that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I use, easy, I mean, as you know, Mark, on the, on a scoop boot, I, I'll get a hot rasp because you maintain the grip and you push it into the to the breakover when, we're, especially with laminitics, if I'm if I'm going to bring the breakover back on a scoop boot, I just warm up the rasp, push it into the to the toe of the boot, and that way you keep the grip by leaving the the imprint of the rasp, and you're not losing any any material, so you're not rasping it out, you're just pushing it back into the boot and moulding it, so you get a nice break. It takes two seconds. 
sense. And what we're doing straight away is saying, I understand your compromise. You shouldn't have to do it. We're the professionals. We're working in this red area where we've created, and it's our job to make sure that we can facilitate the self-healing and, and you shouldn't have to compromise. So hang on, have I got it? Does this mean I've got to put my gas board back in my truck now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, just just a little cooker. That's all you need. We've got that already. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, and that that even is another conversation too about how horses compensate from what we do to them, and not just from their environment or other things that are. You know, well, indirectly, Alicia, it's all done by us, isn't it? I mean, you know, if we're all being truthful, what we should do is just all let our horses go and all stand there and have fun watching them doing what they would love to do. And and whether it's eat from the hedgerows or you know gallop along the hard ground, whatever. But we, as soon as we decide to uh, you know put up a, a gate, a fence, a head collar, whatever, then we've taken over and we've taken away some of that self-healing ability. Can I just can I just say one more thing because it's it's funny it's always been in the back of my mind and different things like that. At the height of my barefoot career, I was probably shoeing. I was transitioning into sort of barefoot more than shoeing and getting out of the shoeing and things. And I had a summer where it was completely dry from April right through to September, and the ground got harder and harder and harder. And at this point, I had numerous horses that were unshod on on most of the yards that I worked at. And what started happening was all the shod horses started going lame and all the unshod horses were doing much better. These are the ones that were trekking more. They were having to pick up the slack because the shod horses weren't able to cope with the hard ground. Now, what, you know, and, and I was starting to get like absolutely proper cocky about it. Isn't this fantastic? Best thing since sliced bread. But what all these horses were doing was producing masses and masses of soil. They were layering and layering and layering the soles off. And I had an issue, I think it was the second week of September, we had a week of torrential rain and all my barefoot horses went footy. And every last one of them, when I went out to see them, they shed all this soul in chunks, guys, absolute chunks, because that foot was adapting to a softer ground so it needed more concavity for grip. Now, Now, what was interesting, within two weeks, it was dry and all those horses that replaced that soul again. That's what healthy feet can do. They can Which adapt is, to the environment. Alicia, know? you know, getting back to the start, compromise is a good thing as well. So when they're compromising for the weather, as Matthew's just been saying, we, we've got to read that as well. And and assuring Farrier, as we all were, um, you know, we were conscious of it, but they're not taught to read it. And, and obviously the horse is trying to talk to us all the time. And if we understand the language and we can transmit that to the owner, if a, if a good owner is taking care of the compromise when we're not there, we become much better people when we are there. A horse's foot's trying to be the best foot possible with what it's got at any given point in time. So we have to be able to observe that. We have to be able to read it for the benefit of that horse. Because sometimes through our training and our understanding of having a good new trim, trim pattern because that's what we've been taught or or whatever, we potentially could damage that and take it away from that ability to cope with what it's having to deal with. So it's a, it, it's, it's a huge pause for thought. Everybody has to start somewhere, but the ability to think about the environment, what the horse is going through, and like what Mark's saying, what, you know, don't, don't watch it walk up and down before you trim it or shoot it. Watch how it walks up and down before you touch the thing, you know then speak to the horse owner how's the horse been 
and my last little rant as well is the effect that the hoof capsule takes with poor riding is another subject that at some point we need to kind of do because <laughs> because you're amazed it's one-sided riders how you see that in, in your feet i'm not going to start on that right i better stop, I better stop. <laughs> actually right. we did in another episode um with, with Shannon Peters, it was dressage, you know, barefoot dressage horses. Uh, we talked yeah. a little bit about how the more balanced they got in the correct dress, dressage training, the less they saw high-low feet. Got to. So I have got a question to, yeah. that, um, you know, might be off topic and maybe it's a little bit, uh, you know, just for my own curiosity. But how much um, do you change your trim based on the weather and the seasons and is there any specific example that you can give? Because I know what I do, although I feel like I still have, you know, a few week adjustment period where I try to figure out the individual hoof between seasons. Um, but I'd love to hear what others that are more experienced do. I'll bet it's not any more technical, Alicia. I think I think it is keeping a very close eye on the weather and also educating your clients as to what the weather pattern's about to do to you. You know, typically if we've got a a spell of frosted grass or we've we've had some very heavy rainfall and we get a, a period of very warm bright sunshine all those kind of things and we have to be so aware of really really grilling into how has your horse been how's it been doing have you noticed anything going on with it i think it's massively important and, and of course if you've gone through that change then you can expect to have to be a lot more gentle with what you might have been doing say for example if you've got a a horse that you really want to ultimately end up a lot shorter in the toe and you've been going quite happily taking say between 10 o'clock and two o'clock on the foot as you look at it and leaving a lot of the rest you might just have to have to say okay well we'll catch you next time or you shorten your trim cycle get through that weather spike and then come again at it i mean just having some some great fun at the moment with with 10 day trims which it'll be a combination of, of owner input and myself and the 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 beauty of a 10-day trim is it almost completely eliminates all of those worries because you're not doing enough to destabilize that hoof capsule if you've got to get your nippers out then you've really got to think about how healthy is the horse how robust is the foot did da did da do you see what i mean so yeah that's that's my little bit for it i think yeah. I think we're back to this um, this thing of the owner's you know participation and and obviously if if you're trying to make a horse better and and the ten day trim which Mark and I've been talking about lately um, you know if we can get insurance companies and vets to realise this is actually a series of treatment and it could be a seasonal thing with weather and, and conditions but also uh, whether it's laminitics or whatever if if they can say look rather than it being on a course of you know navlocks for prenovicular syndromes or whatever that we have a 10-day trim system which would last for you know however many x trims and we've got boots and, and all the things that go with it but professionally this is accepted as a as a, a regular system then we're not going through that big change but if you've got an owner who can put in a track system can put in the right environment can put in the right conditions underfoot then we're going to work less anyway so that when you have the weather change the horse is going to be telling you when you turn up you know you, you sometimes get these hunks as matthew was talking about earlier hunks of soul dropping off or uh, the frog's been hanging on longer than usual and then it suddenly comes away as one big lump or whatever and and if we read that and we make notes and, and it's to that horse to that environment to that owner and to that horse then it becomes easier when you go along and and as you say Alicia, you know we have to uh, whether it's trim to the weather 
or dietary conditions, it becomes less as a shock when you pick the foot up because the time scale is is filled between your last minute with the horse being able to self-manage as much as it can. Yeah. Which is the ultimate, you know. And I think as well it sort of raises another question, you know, is the owner actually actively wanting to ride the horse and exercise the horse or is the thing a pasture pet? You know, yeah. I mean, I've seen more damage from people just keeping horses in fields because they like to look at them and do nothing with them yeah. and minimal movement. I mean, that in itself is a form of cruelty, you know, if the animal isn't getting excessive exercise, which is where the track systems and that kind of thing and, and having a mate to play with and thing is so brutally important, you know. And I know I'm being controversial here and things like this, you know, but ultimately we have to we have to be thinking around the needs of the horse rather than the needs of a rider or the needs of an owner. And once we start doing that, the, the rider and the owner will start getting a better horse. You know, and for me, that's what we all want. I don't want to have lame horses. I don't want horses mechanically failing and, and breaking and all this sort of stuff because it's expensive. I know that this is such a huge topic. I feel like we could talk about a million ways that horses compensate for what we do or their environment or everything else that's going on um, in their care. But is there any kind of, you know, last minute advice or thoughts that you want to get out there that maybe we didn't address? There is, but I want Robbie to go first, just to see. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> no, Mark, come on. You, you, it's time you spoke. Um, we, we've ranted. But, uh, okay, okay. Give your horse's feet a holiday because everyone needs to relax and unwind. Yes. <laughs> Mark and I are starting a whole, a whole regime of giving your feet, the horse's feet a holiday. So a, a good eight weeks holiday every year never hurt anybody. Do you mean from so, shoes? So, well, I, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't give them a holiday um, from trimmers who are doing a good job, but I think horses, <laughs> certainly, certainly, the, certainly horses that are in shoes, when I was an apprentice, every horse, no matter what it did, at some point in the year it had its shoes off because it wasn't doing the discipline that it was it was brought to do. But nowadays a hunter is meant to be a show jumper, is meant to be a hack, is meant to be – so horses can be used every day and all day if they want. And it's it's not now uh, seemed usual for a horse to have its shoes off. And what we're saying is give the feet a holiday for eight weeks. And any good farrier will say it's a brilliant idea because when there's – even for eight weeks, I mean, I'd much rather it be longer. But within those eight weeks, supposing the horse even goes better in the school, supposing, um, you know, by just buying a pair of boots, they could prolong that to 10 or 12 weeks. But also suppose that when they come back to shoe it, that, that split isn't so bad. The, uh, the frogs are a lot healthier. Those heels are spread a bit more. The white line isn't so bad, and um, all, all those things. And and you know, if they read it, then they'll realise that the horse is going to compensate less with shoes off. And if it doesn't, then fine. You know, go ahead, shoe your horse. But um, I think most horses will tell them that having the shoes off is is a, a wonderful thing. Yeah. Yep. I think Matthew. Well, I suppose I suppose for me, it's just to thank horse owners. You know, I mean, I've been very fortunate to have a very incredibly enriched life working work, working with horses. But I think everybody will go through a stage where they lose awful lot of confidence and they struggle with the direction they're going in. And I would say that's probably, well, predominantly, it's because of poor training. It's poor access to information. 
where people are not stood there lying to them because their ego needs to drive something. You know what I mean? And 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 I think horse owners themselves have to give themselves credit because without them driving this, we'd still be tacking shoes on and having my head in the sand. You know, people taking their animal wanting to do better for them is where predominantly most of my knowledge came from because I didn't know. Do you know what I mean? These guys, these guys went out there and they sought that information, you know, and it's our responsibility to be vulnerable enough just to be sponges, just for to take that information as and when we need it. Because ultimately, as farriers and trimmers, although that one person's obsessing over one horse, our ability to reach out to all the horses in our practice with best practice within our areas will always have a benefit for the animals around where, you know, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's about coming together. It's about coming together and sharing knowledge and different things like that. And predominantly the power of that has to come from horse owners. They're the guys with the bucks, you know, and humbly grateful for them, humbly grateful for them. Yeah. And I think this is great. And honestly, I have, you know, so many more questions myself that I would love to chat about and i wish i had more time you take care and, right. and thank you it's a wonderful job yeah, yeah thanks course. ever so much alicia it's really good of you yeah i really appreciate thanks, alicia. You have a good rest of your take night bye bye i always say that i'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person and chances are if you're listening to a hoof care podcast you are too so we should probably be friends Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.